what's up this is the you're not listening to this podcast and as always i'm your host will james now it's been a long time since i recorded an episode and that's been for various reasons but if i'm being completely honest i would say most of it has just been essentially self-sabotage um I've had a lot of things I've wanted to say and trying to find the perfect way to say it and not be um, controversial or offensive or uh, incomplete Um, has been really difficult, but it's also been a situation where I'm obviously creating a problem to prevent myself from doing what uh, I feel like I need to do. And when I say that, I mean, I I get these concepts and ideas stuck in my head and, and it feels as though if I don't get them out, some part of me might die. And I know that sounds dramatic, and I don't mean it like death, death, but like an atrophied muscle or an amputated limb. Uh, something I need to use or lose. And I know at the risk of sounding like someone that suffers from delusions of grandeur, I uh, I have to make these. So it is what it is. Um. And recently, uh, an event happened that caused me to think of something in a different way, and I just wanted to to share that with you if you have a few moments. See, a week ago, my little man came to work with me. He had his tonsils and adenoids removed uh, the week before and was still recovering. His throat was a little sore, but for the most part, he was already back to being his old self. However, he was just a couple more days away from being cleared for play in regular society, so he came to office with Dad. Now, I remember those rare times back in the day when when I went to office with my dad. Those trips were just shy of magic to me because there were these tiny glimpses into this other mysterious world my dad voyaged to and from each day. See, my mom's occupation, similar to my wife's, was... Fairly easy for a young mind to comprehend. Patients came to her when they didn't feel good, and she, in turn, would make them feel better. From my perspective, that was pretty much what she did at home, so mom was always out being mom. That I could get my head around. Dad's career, however, was a little less tangible. There were digits, numbers, codes, paperwork, etc. It was confusing. All I really knew was that he worked at the bank downtown with the popcorn machine in the lobby. And that ambiguity made each of the trips more intriguing. But getting to see what he did for a living wasn't what always stood out to me. The thing about trips to Dad's office was the totality of the experience. It started with the drive through downtown to the bank that's been there since 1901. It's older than the state. He continued with Mom's audible exasperation or exuberance about her parking options and getting to use the employees-only entrances. Then there was swiping watermelon-flavored suckers from the tellers or a peppermint from a desk in the pit. And of course, that popcorn machine I told you about. All the while, everyone I passed would greet me with a huge smile, a high five, maybe tell me a joke. They all seemed to know who I was and who I had come to see. With each of these trips, a tiny spark was lit, shining just enough light to see that whatever it is Dad does, he must be pretty important. To see that the people who spend their day with him find him special enough to treat me like an heir to some kind of royalty, as if just being his kid meant I too could be just as special. 
It was these moments that began creating context for where Dad was always rushing off to in a suit and tie every morning and why he was often the last to come back home. He was important to the world outside of just my house, and he had responsibilities to take care of. He was at home with me as much as he could be, and I developed a better framework for where he was and what he was doing when he couldn't. The more I got to visit him where he was in his other habitat, the more I felt I understood what he does out there, and the less I felt concern about when he would get home or when he might leave again. He wasn't away. I was sharing him. Did I ever truly understand what his job was at a young age? Probably not. I'm not sure I fully tried. Once I developed a concept that made sense to my young mind, I became satisfied. The narrative those visits allowed me to construct was comforting. True, complete, or not. I get the sense that this impulse, this need to construct frameworks and handy little boxes for the unknown is natural, and that I'm not the only person that did this with one or both of his parents. I also think that this impulse for comfort over truth extends itself to all other areas of our lives, particularly in the realm of the spiritual, even if in less obvious ways. One way it shows up is in the common emphasis on the requirement of certainty and knowledge when it comes to our religious dogmas, our interpretation of the Bible, and the ability and courage to defend the same. Getting it right and being able to prove it against any and all comers. See, I come from a tradition, similar to many of you, I suspect, where successfully defending any and every aspect of our faith is essentially tantamount to having faith in the first place. A tradition where it is easy to find ourselves more concerned with proving we are right, or at least that we would give no quarter to the opposition's point of view, than actually being right. Where it becomes easy to believe our correct thinking about God is evident in our bank accounts, career options, test scores, and the outcomes of sporting events. Where it becomes easy to believe our answered prayers come by way of our diet, abstentionism, voting records, legalism, tithe percentages, and heterosexuality. Yet being right has proven to be a difficult definition to nail down in the first place when discussing these ultimate questions of human existence and purpose. Let's not forget that at times the majority of Christians have been certain about the Bible's affirming stances on issues ranging from geocentricity, polygamy, slavery, to the innate spiritual limitations of women and the subhuman status of people of color. Certain, but wrong. Still, we continue to demand a single homogenous system be culled from a collection of texts as diverse in message and viewpoint as the books of the Bible. We see this diversity as a diversion from and incompatibility with the pursuit of faith and truth instead of considering the likelihood that this diversity just may be indispensable to it. But is this because such thinking is actually true or just more comfortable? Peter Enns, in The Sin of Certainty, wrote, The preoccupation with holding on to correct thinking with a tightly closed fist is not a sign of strong faith. It hinders the life of faith because we are simply acting on a deep, unnamed human fear of losing the sense of familiarity and predictability that our thoughts about God give us. You see, our thoughts about God are not God. 
I know that sounds obvious, but if we take a moment of reflection and are honest with ourselves, we often confuse and combine the two without so much as a second thought. Look at it this way. I would not consider it stepping too far out on a limb to say that the majority of people who subscribe to the Christian religion believe they, or at the very least the churches to which they attend, have figured it out. Whatever interpretation of the Bible and its contents our local spiritual community professes, that is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but. Often this goes unsaid and maybe even unknown until someone from outside of this presents a challenge. Yet how quickly an honest and simple question can trigger our defenses, our need to plant our flags, put our feet down, and rain condemnation if necessary instead of a simple discussion. Can't you see the problem here? You, your church isn't the only one that's certain. At the very least, there are the three big branches, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and Protestant. The Protestants are split up into Adventists, Anglicans, Baptists, Calvinists, Reformed, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Methodist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, so forth and so on. I could stop there, but it would be overly simplistic. I mean, I'm sure I left someone off that list that's already offended, not to mention each of the above are umbrella terms for even more. And let's be honest, there's at least two Baptist branches down here, but don't blame me, blame Wikipedia. All told, according to the Center of the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, there are approximately 41,000 Christian denominations and organizations in the world. 41,000. Now that probably includes a, a whole bunch of weird things in it, so I'll try to tone it down, but still, that's just the Christian churches, the New Testament crowd. We also share some commonalities in the Old Testament with Judaism and Islam at least, and each of those trees have multiple branches as well. Then you have all the other world religions that aren't Abrahamic. They're, they're interpreting or experiencing something, though, but... Just sticking to the Bible crew for now. Each group is technically differentiated by how certain they are about some biblical aspect that the rest of us have ignored, devalued, missed, or dismissed. Each believes that they have the answers, more if not all. Each believes and claims to know the truth, and their proximity to that truth aligns them closest to the one true God. My point is, that's a whole lot of variance in truths for the one true God. Perhaps truth is bigger than we think. Perhaps grace is greater as well. We're all using the same book with the same history, outside of the fact that the book itself has gone through many translations, was compiled throughout time, drawing influence from multiple cultures, languages, and writing styles. We interpret the same collection, we all ask the same questions. We all have different answers. What does this mean? Does it mean it's one church versus the rest? Us versus them? Are we all wrong? Are we all right? Are we going to be all right? Now that's the real catch. What terrifying questions. What a burden uncertainty seems to be. We cannot stand uncertainty, even though we're surrounded by it. If and when we forget where we stored it away and uncertainty bubbles back to the surface, it is often met with a chorus of voices concerned with our losing our faith, our motivations, and our souls. 
This anxiety causes us to forget that uncertainty is evidenced by our biblical heroes. Jacob wrestled with God to become Israel. The authors of Ecclesiastes, Job, and Lamentations constantly expressed their uncertainties. Thomas had doubts, as did eyewitnesses to a resurrected Jesus. Paul and James disagree on the purpose of good works. But when we encounter moments of uncertainty, we feel obligated to cauterize them before the infection spreads. We seek concrete definitions and lines drawn in the sand as early as possible to feel safe. We lock these ideas of who and what God is and what he does, what the Bible means in a vault, and we never allow these concepts to be touched or removed. I believe that there's a problem with selling such certainty because the ultimate focus is self, not the divine. Ultimately, this is all serving as a salve for fear. If I pick a church's ethos and I'm fully certain about the steps, then I follow those steps. There's nothing for me to worry about because A plus B equals C. Should information present itself as some threat to this mathematical certainty, we have a guttural tendency to vigorously ignore, debate, and disprove that information. Additionally, it's equally as important that those around us believe that we know what we're talking about and that we're completely right. Otherwise, we will feel less certain about our soul's fates, less certain of our destinations when we die. Again, with the behavior modification for afterlife insurance. Every time we win a spiritual debate or argument for the Lord, or even if we lose but never waver or give an inch, no matter how inarticulate, ridiculous, hypocritical, or even non-Christ-like we appear in that moment or in our reasoning, we've paid our premium for the month. We've met our deductible. We took a stand. Now you better hold up your end of the deal when I kick it, Jesus. But the purpose of even discussing the divine should be for growth, compassion, love, interconnection between the people speaking. We should be embracing debate, conversation, growth, and progression of thought. We should appreciate the value of a foreign perspective and how it can help shape our own. We should be wrestling with the mysteries. We should be striving toward a constantly evolving understanding of God as he or it or whatever continuously expresses itself to its creation through its creation. We should not limit the divine to simply learning how to behave or blindly accepting what has become comforting on faith. I mentally place those that word in quotations due to another Peter Enns quote from the same book. Believing that we are right about God helps give us a sense of order in an otherwise messy world. So when we are confronted with the possibility of being wrong, that kind of faith becomes all about finding ways to hold on with everything we've got to be right. We're not actually trusting God at that moment. We're trusting ourselves and disguising it as trusting God. Perhaps, though, we're less concerned with discovering God and too preoccupied with categorizing him. We keep him in our boxes because we understand them, not because he fits. We're more comfortable with the unknowable if it can become predictable. So we relegate to the divine to the confines of these narratives that we have created and placed on it like clay shaping the potter. 
And these narratives gives us peace of mind. They're comforting, true, complete, or not. Perhaps we're like me at that young age, wandering the halls of First National Bank, looking for my dad's office. Perhaps we are just children trying to develop stories about our father to better explain those moments in life when we can't feel him, know what he's doing, or know when he'll come back again. Maybe sometimes finding truth is not as much our goal as comforting our insecurities, satisfying our fragile egos, or justifying our own sacrifices. I'm not necessarily saying this instinct is wrong. I'm not speaking to its correctness. I'm speaking to the biases in and true purposes of this correctness. I'm asking, what if these narratives about God are more about calming anxiety about our mortality than understanding something greater about the source of life? What if our need for certainty is really about making God predictable? And what if faith is not that simple? Maybe just like kids wandering the halls, what dad is really doing here is beyond us, too complex for simple words, or in some instances, simply unknowable. What I can say for sure is this. If the people that spend time with him treat the rest of us like heirs to his royalty, we can all come to a deeper understanding of his stature and importance. Just a thought. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 as well as verses 12 and 13 says, Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limits. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. We don't yet see things clearly. We are squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. Like I said, just a thought. But that'll do it for today. So uh, thank you for listening to the You're Not Listening to this podcast. I'm Will James. Find me at thisiswilljames.com. Also, don't forget to look up our other podcast that I do with my wife, the Couples Therapy Podcast. It's great. Way less uh, heady than this, we'll call it. <laughs> but as always, I like to send you out with a song. So uh, here is Molly Music. All I have to give. I love you, even though I don't know you. Every day of my life, every breath that I breathe, you gave to me, and Lord, I re-dedicated me right back to you, the love of my life, so faithful, so 